why me to why me? We're going to be going over accepting God's will, accepting his plan and purpose for our lives, going from an attitude of why me? Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? To a posture of why me? Why, God, do you care so much for me? So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, recognizing you are on the throne and in control. Nothing comes as a surprise to you, Lord. You know each of us, and each hair on our head, Lord. We want to lift up the missions team this morning. We want to ask for traveling mercies. We ask that you would unite the team and bless them as they have their remaining meals as they uh, open your word and learn from you this morning, uh, as they travel uh, back across the border, Lord, that you'd give them uh, safe and speedy passage uh, through the border and get all of our loved ones uh, back home safely to us. Lord, we also want to lift up all of our friends and family, Lord, who are sick uh, this morning and ask that you would touch and heal, that you would speed healing, that you would return them all to us here, healthy and strong, uh, for our next service, Lord. Lord, we ask for a a blessing on this time, Lord, that uh, your truth would be proclaimed and only your truth. Lord, we ask that you would, uh, your word would be glorified and you would be glorified. We lift this time up to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God leads us through valleys. He, He leads us up to mountaintops. We praise him on the mountaintops, and then when we go through the valleys, sometimes we're like, okay, hmm, yeah, no? At least I do that. I don't know. Is name, am I the only one? So there are struggles and burdens we can carry, and sometimes these can last months and years, decades, sometimes a lifetime. In trying to accept God's will for our lives, we need to recognize who God is. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Big words. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. That means he's in control of everything. Nothing comes as a surprise to him. In our limited minds and understanding... We can't fully grasp the infinite ways of our God. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. If you've been in church for any length of time, this is a, not a new and revelatory verse, right? This, we've heard this before. We often use it when the circumstances that we come across don't make sense, when our, they don't match up with our expectations, and we're like, oh, yeah, we kind of, we use the verse. But do we really use it and apply it to those struggles and, and those things that we think are unwelcome in our lives? When we have that devastating blow that unexpected loss. When we experience that deep hurt, 
that lifelong struggle. Can we accept it? Can we accept his ways? Can we accept his plan? How often do we ask our all-knowing, all-powerful God, why me? Do we go to him and say, ah, I think you messed up here. I think you might have got it wrong, God. So we're going to go through three aspects of accepting God's will. Accepting his timing, accepting his ways, and accepting his love. Let's go through a few examples from scripture, uh, at least for me, where when I read these, it has me wondering about God's timing. So we're going we're gonna to go through, we're going to be in John 5, we're going to be in John 9, and we're going to be in John 11. Accepting his timing. Starting in John 5, 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus, ans- Jesus answered and said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. So this man was paralyzed for 38 years. Doesn't say how long he was at the pool, but he was lying around there for some time. A cynical reading of this scripture would make you think this poor man was left paralyzed for 38 years simply so Jesus could heal him, right? That would make God cruel. And, and as we encounter setbacks and trials, do we sometimes think of God as a cruel God? So I'm hoping to answer that today. The consequences of, of, of the curse and Adam's fall mean there's going to be evil in the world and there's going to be illness. According to God's will, he can choose to use those struggles, to use those infirmities for his glory and according to his timing. I could go into this whole quantum thing about God and his infinite but um, I left that out. But his ways are not our ways. It's possible John was using this man's struggle, and then specifically the 38 years, uh, as a picture of Israel wandering in the wilderness, because they also wandered in the wilderness uh, for 38 years before reaching the promised land. In Deuteronomy 2.14, it says, And the time uh, from our leaving to Kadesh Barnea until until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. So there was 38 years where... You know, that they had failed to go into the promised land, and so all of the, the military age people had to die out. And so it took 38 years before that happened. This man is a picture of the spiritual state of Israel, a nation powerless and waiting hopelessly for something to happen. John, was John trying to, to get the attention of the current nation of Israel? They were in that same state of hopelessness and powerlessness. This was a hopeless and powerless generation that was waiting for, for someone to overthrow Rome. John describes the people waiting at the pool as invalids, blind, lame, 
and paralyzed. Uh, in the ESV, it actually leaves out the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Uh, so I'm going to read those in, in New King James. It says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So that's in the ESV. And then the rest of it uh, is, is not. So waiting for the, the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well and whatever from whatever disease they had. So according to these verses, the first person, so the water would get stirred up, and the first person that gets there gets healed, and no one else does. So as Jesus approaches the paralyzed man, he asks, do you want to be healed? And he's been there for 38 years, and you think, if Jesus, he doesn't know who Jesus is, but he says, do you want to be healed? You think, yes. I, he would think he would be enthusiastic, saying, yes, I want to be healed. But instead, he starts making excuses. He's well, well... The, uh, explaining why, you know, the, I, I, the water gets stirred up and I don't have anybody and nobody's taking me and so I just sit here. So woe is me. Someone else always beats him to the pool every time. And so it says for years, we don't know long, how long. It probably wasn't 38 years, but it was a long time. He had been in a state of waiting so long that his hope and his will were as paralyzed as his body. He didn't even, he didn't even really didn't have the strength to hope that he could be healed. So obedience was required. Jesus tells the paralytic man to take up his bed and walk. He wouldn't experience the healing if he hadn't tried to get up. God has his reasons and his timeline. Sometimes we see the plan and we, we are certain, we, we're, um, in certain circumstances, we, we see it right away why certain things turned out better because something did happen or didn't happen. Uh, we, we see that if we had gotten what we wanted, uh, we wouldn't have been available for another blessing. Or maybe without the trial, we wouldn't be in a place, either physically or spiritually, where we were ready to receive a greater opportunity. So sometimes we see that. And it's awesome when that happens, and, and we see the Lord, oh, the Lord, you know the Lord, he's awesome. But other times, we don't get the answers, and we, don't, we won't know God's purposes this side of eternity. What we do know about this specific healing, it's a demonstration of the grace of God. It was, a grace, it was grace that brought Jesus to Bethesda with a specific purpose to heal this one man. Well, he, he could have, you know, obviously, he could have healed everybody who was there waiting around the pool, but he doesn't. He healed only this one man, and then he kind of, like, steps. He just, like, goes out, goes out left. I mean, he just slides out inconspicuously. But it was targeted, and it was for a purpose. The Messiah was prophesied to heal the lame and the blind and the deaf. And Jesus used this healing specifically to declare who he was. In Isaiah 35, starting in verse 3, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So they were prepared to see miracles from the Messiah. Jesus is healing the lame man to declare he is the one that was promised in Scripture. But also note that the, de- the timing here is deliberate. He could have healed the guy the day before or the day after. But when does he heal him? He heals him on the Sabbath. It was specific. His timing was specific. It was for a reason. Everything had a purpose. He could have healed him any other day, but the plan, his plan, was to heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus was doing that to get the attention of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He knew it was going to cause a stir, so it wasn't a coincidence that he was here there on the, the Sabbath, and it was all for the greater purpose and plan. And so that, hopefully, is encouraging that when we are experiencing trials, it's not just for, there's a reason. You may think a certain obstacle appeared at an inconvenient time, and you're like, I was just starting to make progress, and then this thing happens, and now, you know, everything. God didn't know this thing was going to happen, so now I just can't make progress in whatever, you know, God is telling you to do. Does that ever happen? We need to look at how God is trying to grow us, how he's trying to teach us and use these obstacles instead of making those the excuse. There will be those trials and issues that can't be resolved. Um, But there will be those um, that are resolved as soon as you learn the lesson, right? You're like, God's telling you to do something. You learn the lesson, and then the trial goes away. The issue is solved. There will be those times where we come together and ask for a healing or ask for the Lord to move, and we pray and lift up. As soon as the prayer is lifted up, person's healed, the issue's resolved. Our faith is strengthened, right? We see the Lord answering in the affirmative, and we're like, our God is a good God, and he is. But God is still good when the timing doesn't make sense. God is still good when the healing doesn't come. Many wait their whole lives for a healing that never comes. We need to rest in the knowledge of who God is and accept his timing and his purpose. Next up, we want to go into accepting his ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. We can't expect to understand everything he does or why he does what he does. We need to accept that God is God and we aren't. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. While we can't understand all God does or why, we can know his character, his nature, and rest in that knowledge. He is a good God. He is a just God. He is a perfect God. Let's continue in, verse, or in John 9, starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man's, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Here we have another person with a long-standing infirmity, this time since birth. The disciples question whether this man's blindness was due to his, his sin or his parents. Obviously, it can't be due to his sin because he was born, so he couldn't have sinned before he was born. Um, um, but Jesus makes it clear that it wasn't either the man or his parents that sinned. You know, all, all, all sin is a result, or not all sin, all illness is, is a result of the fall, right? So all sin, sin and illness and death um, are part of the curse. Uh, it says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So I, you know, it's clear that um, obviously the, both the man and the parents have sinned, right? So that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you know, this blindness wasn't the cause of, there was no consequence of sin that made this person blind. But Jesus says it wasn't for sin, but so the works of God might be displayed in him. Only God knows why this man was born blind. Only God knows why babies are born with handicaps. I didn't think that was going to get me. Mm. Why some lives seem to be cut short. And why others seem to have a harder life to walk. Sorry. <clears throat> what we do know is only God can turn those handicaps into something that would bring good to others, that would bring glory to his name. to bring fruit out of tragedy, to bring praise in spite of difficult circumstances. So God has a personal plan for each of us. He sees each of us individually and knows our strengths and struggles. He doesn't have this one-size-fits-all thing where he fits you into a mold, oh, well, you're going to be this one and you're going to be this one. It's, it's custom designed for your specific growth. He knows you intimately and has an intimate and specific plan for each of our lives. As an example of that, even with the same infirmity, the Bible gives us three examples, different examples of how Jesus healed a blind person. In Matthew 9, uh, verse 28, it says, When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And he, they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open. So in this case, he just touches them. Their eyes are open. Praise the Lord. 
In, in Mark 8, verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and then he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So in this case, he spits in his eyes. So he, maybe he spit too much in his eyes, so it was blurry the first time. I don't know. Uh, but the point is, different, same, same infirmity, different approaches. And Jesus is going to use different approaches with each of us. Here in John 9, uh, Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud, and then rubs it in the blind man's eye, and then has him go wash. As with the paralytic man in John 5, in this case, Jesus requires action. He's requiring obedience of this person in order for them to get healed. Why not just speak and heal him? Why put the mud in his eyes? The mud surely stung. Surely it was irritating. Um, this would bring quick action, right? So rub it in there. He's like, oh, I've got to get this. I've got to get it out. I'm going to go, do exactly what he says. Maybe he doesn't even believe he's going to be healed. He's just, I've got to get the mud out. So he goes and quickly does, has obedience. He, he does the action that was requested, and he immediately gets healed. Warren Wearsby compares this, the mud, uh, the irritating mud, to the work of the Holy Spirit. The irritation that we experience as, it, as, as the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. As, we, as the lost sinner is, is called to acknowledge their sin, repent, and turn to God. Jesus declared in, in, uh, that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here, Jesus is obedient. He's claiming his obedience uh, to the Father who sent him. He's recognizing his time on earth is limited. He's recognizing he has opportunities and he needs to act now. This is also an example for us. He, he, he acts immediately on the opportunities that are presented to him. In this act of obedience, Jesus obviously brings light, not only into the world, but into the eyes of this blind man, so he could see for the first time in his life. As we are presented with trials and struggles, we need to recognize they can also be opportunities to be obedient. We don't have to fully understand the purpose to glorify God. We don't have to fully understand the trial to bear fruit. Each of us has our own walk and road to walk. God has given each of us unique gifts, but he's also giving each of us unique limitations, both of which he expects us to use for his kingdom. Jesus illustrates this in, in, in the parable of the talents. Uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But the one who received 
the one talent, went and dug in the ground and hid it, hid his master's money. God isn't comparing us to each other. He compares us in relation to the gifts he's given us and how we can glorify him in spite of the obstacles that are included in his plan for each of us. The person with two talents isn't criticized because they didn't make five. He's encouraged. He's rewarded. The one producing five talents and the one that produced two received exactly the same response from the master. To the one with five talents, he says in verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will, put you, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 23, he's talking to the one with two talents, exactly the same response. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So God knows God knows each of us. He knows what he's given us. And for those he's given a lot, he expects a lot. But on, on, the, hand, on the other hand, with, when it comes to trials and obstacles and struggles, and limitations, God knows that too. He knows, but he expects us to come to him, give it to him. And through those obstacles, he will be glorified and so we can't use those as an excuse. I'm like, God, I would have done this. I have this gift, but, you know, I have this, and, and I just can't. We need to be careful not to have the attitude of the man who is given one talent. Yes, continuing in verse 24. He also received the one talent. He who also received the one talent came forward and saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid the talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. We need to be careful to not look at God and declare him a hard master. To think the gifts he's given us are too little. To think that the obstacles in our path too large. God will supply all our needs and be our strength to accomplish whatever it is he's laid out for each of us. He gives us both. He understands. He knows what to expect of each of us in spite of what those struggles might be. God has no tolerance for someone who's telling him no or for those who are saying, it's too hard. You gave me this. What am I supposed to do with this? Look at the master's response to the man who, who, who put one talent in the ground, uh, continuing in verse 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. You ought to have invested the money in, with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given, more will be given, and he who has an, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast this worthless servant 
into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we focus on ourselves, if we focus on our limitations, it's easy to come to the conclusion it's too hard and it can't be done. But God knows us. God is not expecting us to go it alone. He wants us to bring everything to him. Let him work through us, using his power to do all that he's called each of us to do. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. To accept his ways is to accept uh, and recognize that there will be valleys and trials. As we learned on, on Wednesday, Job 2.10, Job says to his wife, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? To accept his ways is to acknowledge that some obstacles may never be removed. Paul's thorn in the flesh is an example. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. So to keep from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, and it should leave, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul had been given these awesome revelations. And Paul also recognizes that that could have gone to his head. And that Paul recognizes that the purpose of him, these thorns not being removed, was because it was, it was the purpose of keeping him humble. The Bible isn't specific about what the thorn was, and I think that's on purpose so that uh, if we knew it was a specific thing, I think it would be less applicable to each of us. This way, we can imagine what it was, but we can also see ourselves there and, and whatever issues we're dealing with. I think it helps us connect and better apply it to our lives. Whatever it was, though, Paul asked the Lord three times to remove it. He pleaded with the Lord about it. God's response, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. To accept God's ways, we need to let him be strong where we are weak, so that the power of Christ may rest upon us, for when we are weak, then we are strong. His ways are individual and personal. We have gifts and trials with that with, will both be used to accomplish his will according to his plans and purposes. Through his ways, we, glor- we, are glorify, we glorify him in our weaknesses. Let me say that again because I messed it up. Through his ways, we glorify him through our weaknesses. So accepting his timing, accepting his ways, let's move on to accepting his love. We're going to start in John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. 
So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus learns his friend is sick. We learn that Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He says that the illness that Lazarus had does not lead to death, uh, but that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then something odd. So your your friend is sick. I love all you guys. Um, He stayed two days longer in the place that he was. So obviously Jesus already knows the end of the story. But to, but to those who were watching, the disciples and anybody else who know, it looks like he's unconcerned. Um, do we ever get that feeling? God, are you paying attention here? It seems odd. So then after, after two days of waiting, Jesus says, let's go to Judea, to Lazarus, and the disciples, no, so they'd just come from Judea, and so they left because he was, Jesus was going to get stoned from the things he had said in, in uh, John 10. So they'd gone over the Jordan to where uh, the original place where, where John the Baptist was baptizing people. So they'd fl- fled, and now Jesus is like, let's go back. And they're like, eh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Uh, so uh, picking up in verse 11. After these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go awaken him. And the disciples said, well, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had to, had to spell it out for him. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Jesus tells the disciples plainly, he's dead. We need to go. And despite the danger of getting stoned, they, they go to Judea, they go to Bethany, and, and uh, they go off to see Mary and Martha. He also says that he's glad he wasn't there so that you may believe, the disciples may believe. Our first in- inclination here is to wonder why Jesus just didn't go and heal him when he heard that he was sick. If Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he would have gone, right? This doesn't seem very loving. And, and if we think about it, Jesus didn't even have to go to Bethany, right? He could have healed Lazarus like, uh, like he did the nobleman's son, right? Or you take it further back, why did he even allow Lazarus to get sick in the first place? Again, doesn't seem very loving. Isn't that how we tend to, to uh, approach our trials? Can we trust God that he's in control, that every, he has everything under control. He has a better plan. Uh, picking up in verse 17. And now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So Lazarus has already been dead four days. What does this mean? It's about a day's journey from Bethany to where they were across the Jordan. It took a day uh, for the messenger to go from Bethany to where they are, so day one. Then Jesus says, I'm going to wait two days, day two, day three. And then Jesus travels to Bethany, day four. 
So what does that mean? It means that likely Lazarus died while the messenger was on his way to talk to Jesus. By the time Jesus heard about the illness, Lazarus was likely already dead. The perception is that Jesus could have gone and saved Lazarus, but God had a better plan. What would, what would be more impactful? What would be a more magnificent miracle if he just died and he gets raised from the dead and he's not in the tomb, he's not wrapped in, in cloth? Or God has a better plan. God is more glorified by raising this person because they've been dead. Surely he thinketh, right? Um, he's been dead four days in the grave. Jesus knew there was no hurry to get to Bethany and that the de- delay magnified the glory to God. For me, this, revel- this realization that Lazarus was already dead and that the delay amplified the glory to God, um, it, it, it spoke to me in a way, once I realized this, that um, helped answer questions that I've asked of God. It clarifies everything in this, everything we've been covering so far in this one tangible example. Jesus couldn't have, ru- couldn't have rushed to save Lazarus. He's likely already dead. Jesus' delay magnifies the miracle. God's plan is designed for maximum effectiveness, for maximum efficiency, for maximum impact. We don't have to know or understand those details for it to be true. We don't have to know or understand the reason to be able to just rest, trust that he knows, his, he knows the best plan. For Lazarus, he knows the best plan for us. How many times in a rush to get out of a tough spot we're expecting the Lord to move and he doesn't? How many times has that happened uh, so that the Lord could be glorified in a way we hadn't anticipated? 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. We need to trust. Trust in our loving God. God's love for us doesn't guarantee or even suggest that we're going to be free from pain or suffering. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has this to say, we must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly, they unite in Jesus Christ. Also, God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. It is a perfecting love, but it's also personal. Both Mary and Martha came to Jesus after Lazarus' death, looking for answers. In verse 32, uh, Mary talking, or Mary's, uh, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So not only does he recognize, right, oh, she's sad, like off, removed. He's moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. As he goes to the grave, we read, Jesus wept. He feels their pain and loss. Verse 36, it says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Obviously, Jesus knows he's 
Minutes later, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he's weeping. Uh, it didn't, that fact that he's going to raise him from the dead didn't prevent him from experiencing the pain and loss that death brings, that the fall brought. Do you think that this empathy he felt for Lazarus and Mary and Martha uh, was just for them, for those friends he knew on earth as Jesus, the man? No. He loves you, he loves me, same way. He grieves alongside you and me. He also rejoices as we endure the struggles and we have the victories and we push through. This continues to be as personal as it was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It continues to be as personal for him as it is for us. So this, this, this whole message has, is, a, is a result of God working through me and things in my life. And um, what I've learned uh, recently, and so when I carried my own burdens for years, he grieved alongside me. He wasn't standing up in heaven, aloof, unconcerned. Oh, he's having a rough day. That's not the Lord we have. He was there through the years. And when the time came for healing, that's personal too, right? Answering specific doubts, addressing each aspect of the problem, like some custom-made puzzle pieces that he's fitting in that are unique only to me. To complete that final picture, say, you're done. He says to me, I know you. I know what you need. I got you, dude, in the current vernacular. So this is where I go from, why me, Lord? Why did you give me this? Why did it take so long? To, why me? Why did you choose this loser? Why did you choose me, God? Why did you love this doubter enough to die for him? Why did you love me so much? to meet me exactly where I'm at. I don't deserve it. So that's what I learned. The difference between, I, I've known these answers for years, right? Most of this is not new, probably not new to you guys either. So the difference is knowing the answer or just accepting it. Letting go. Do you trust the Lord enough to just, okay. It's, it's resting in him. It's trusting in him. Trusting that he has a perfect plan for you, regardless of all the struggles. He's going to use those for his kingdom, for his glory. We don't need to know all of the details to trust him. 
And I'll leave you just once again with this Second um, Corinthians twelve nine. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we know you're so good to us. We know you love us. Lord, give us the strength when we're weak. Give us the strength and willingness to accept both good and difficult from you, Lord. Lord, we thank you uh, for your blessings. Once again, we ask for traveling mercies on our missions team and healing for our sick friends and family. Lord, you're so good. I love you. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.